Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cast out, pushed away, sent into the distance, driven from the presence of the Lord with a barrier, an angel with a flaming sword to keep them apart, keeping them in the darkness and away from his glorious light. The angel keeping them from drawing close to the Lord. All because of their sin. Sin leads to death. It did in the garden and it still does today. In Romans it says, for the wages of sin is death. Death is that separation from your soul from your body. And it's also a spiritual separation between you and the Lord, your Creator. Sin always leads to separation. It always has. It always will. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. There is a wall that separates us from the Lord keeping us from beholding His glory, enjoying His presence, being near to Him and filled by His love, filled with His joy, experiencing the peace that He so freely offers, keeping us from His goodness. There is a wall of sin that separates us. So I asked this morning for the lights to be turned down to give us a physical representation of this spiritual reality, of being out in the darkness, wandering in the wilderness, separated from God's glorious light. What's amazing is that we live in this darkness every day, but ironically, we fail to see it. We don't recognize this truth that we are separated from God. Our physical eyes don't pick up on this truth. Remember the story of Elisha and his servant as the Syrian army was coming to attack him uh, because Elisha was prophesying all kinds of things and was a thorn in the side of the Syrian king. So he sent his whole army to kill just one guy. And they come in, and Elisha's house is surrounded by chariots and soldiers and horses. And Elisha is sitting there, and he wakes up in the morning, and his servant is just losing his mind. Elisha, have you looked out the window? There's an army out there. He's terrified. And he says to Elisha, what should we do? What should we do? You know, I just picture Elisha over his bowl of Cheerios, just eating breakfast, calmly says, Ah, there's more with us than are against us. And he says a simple prayer. Lord, would you open my servant's eyes so that he could see the truth? 
the reality of what was actually happening. So then the servant goes to the window, looks out again. And what does he see? He sees not only a Syrian army, but an army of angels and chariots of fire and horses of fire. And the the hillside is covered in the army of God to protect Elisha and his servant. See, the miracle in the story isn't the chariots of fire. They were there the whole time. The miracle is that the servant had his eyes opened so that he could see. There is a spiritual reality happening around us all the time. Even in this very room, in this very place, there are things that we cannot pick up on with our five senses. There's no scientific test you can do. There's nothing that we can try out and see with our eyes or touch and feel or smell. The Bible is real and the stories in it are real. The spiritual realities are real, just as real as what we can see physically. And so my prayer today is that just like the servant of Elisha, our eyes would be opened And we would see what cannot be seen. We would hear what cannot be heard. We would experience what we cannot experience with our physical bodies. Let's feel what cannot be felt. Let's believe in a truth that cannot be proven by any human wisdom. May we have eyes to see. And when we see... May everything change. Join me in praying that prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are in the darkness. So dark often that we don't even recognize the darkness around us. Lord, we need your help. We need a miraculous opening of our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we can hear your word, so that we can understand it, so that it can have its effect in us and change us. Lord, keep us from distractions, keep us from a wandering mind, and may your truth ring true in our ears, and may it change us for eternity. Lord, we pray to see what you would want us to see this morning. Amen. So with these spiritual eyes, I want to hopefully show you something amazing this morning. I want you to see a place that is not a fantasy. It's not just fun artwork. It's not just a future location either. It's not a dream. It's a place that exists right now as we speak, and it is just as real as the room that we're sitting in. I want you to imagine with your spiritual vision the throne room of God. The place where God dwells. Now, God is omnipresent, meaning He's all places all at once, but there, are, there seems to be a unique place where his glory and presence 
uniquely are fully represented, maybe. We don't really have the language to describe God, how he can be all places all at once. And yet, the Bible over and over again describes this throne room of the Lord where his presence is felt and experienced. Even King Solomon, when he was building the temple, recognized this difficulty. And he said, I've built you a house you know, out of stone and all the things that our workers have done. But the heavens and all the universe could not contain the Lord, let alone this building that I have constructed. And so, I want to read to you a few passages that describe this spiritual reality of the throne room of God. And by faith, I pray, you see it clearly. So I'm going to read to you a few passages. Feel free just to use your mind's eye of imagination. You don't necessarily need to follow along. Feel free to even close your eyes. I won't think you're sleeping. It's okay. But just imagine here the throne room of the Lord. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atone for. Wow, what a scene. The authority of the Lord and His glory filling the temple. And Isaiah sees it, and he is overwhelmed by the sight. And not only does he see this amazing scene, he looks within himself and immediately sees rightly that he is a sinner. And dwells among people that are sinners. And that this place, this throne room of God, is a place that he does not belong. So he cries out, woe is me. Another one out of Exodus chapter 24, when Moses and some of the elders met with the Lord on Mount Sinai. It says this, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people 
of Israel. So here in this story, we have a blending of the physical world on Mount Sinai and the spiritual world of the throne room of God. And Moses and these elders, they get a glimpse at God on the mountain. The glory of the Lord appeared to them, and it's described like a devouring fire. And it terrified them, and it also terrified the people at the bottom of the mountain. Because if you were to continue reading, what happens to the people is they say, Moses, you go talk to God, we're going the other way. This is too much for us. We don't belong here next to this mountain with God on it. So they actually walked away and sent Moses to be their representative. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of the throne of God. Here's how Daniel describes it. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as wool, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And again, he has another vision and says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees a throne of fire. How awesome, and yet how intimidating is that? It's way better than the Game of Thrones throne of swords, if you've ever seen that represented somewhere but a throne that's meant to bring intimidation and fear. The Lord's throne is described like one of fire that shoots out flames like sun flares because from the throne comes judgment. These books are opened in the court with everything that we've ever done and the Lord judges justly in front of a multitude of his creation. And Daniel gives us this little glimpse of Jesus. He's the Son of Man that is described there with the kingdom and a throne that will not be destroyed, who has all power and dominion, and he deserves all praise. And the last one, I invite you to turn here with me to Revelation chapter 4. Just like Daniel's vision of this throne room, the Apostle John has a vision of God's throne room. He actually uses some of the same language. But in Revelation chapter 4, we're given a very clear picture of this throne of God. And I'm going to start in verse 2. 
At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. My goodness, what a scene. If we could see that with our eyes, we would be terrified. Right now, the spiritual reality is there are these angelic creatures worshiping the Lord and a multitude times a multitude of His creation singing God's praises gathered around this throne of fire that's shooting out flames of fire. It is bright. It is beautiful. It is overwhelming. And we do not belong there. The throne of God and His appearance would overwhelm us. His holiness would consume us in our sin. I don't know if you've ever been close to a large animal. Not at a zoo, but out in the wild. These creatures that are described here, let alone the throne of fire with God upon it, but imagine just seeing one of these angelic creatures. When we were on our trip to lead the cause with the youth, there was a time when we went up into the mountains to go have some worship and uh, the final messages of the week. And as we were driving along, Jenny, who's uh, with us on the trip, she just shouts out from the back of the van, there's a moose! A moose! There's a moose outside! And so I, I want to see the moose too, but I'm driving, so I'm trying to slow down on these like mountain road, and she is losing her mind about the moose. And the kids are like, where, where? 
don't see the moose. I'm trying to lean over my shoulder, not crash. And eventually I get the van to the side of the road. But before I even stop the van, we're still moving. Jenny flings the door open. She just wants to go see this moose more than anything else. And she's yelling, moose, there's cars now backed up behind us because I'm driving erratically. And she gets out and starts yelling at the other vehicles. There's a moose. Look at the moose. There's a moose in the bushes. And the other van's like, what? Who cares? And they start zooming around us giving us dirty looks and she is just overwhelmed by this moose well then all the students are getting out of this 15 passenger van i park i get out and we start getting a little closer we're probably about 200 yards away right plenty of distance well we start getting a little closer right you want a good picture of a moose but then some of the students are thinking and they start saying out loud hey be careful now moose are dangerous They'll, like, take you out. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but we, we can get a little closer, right? We'll get, it, balance that safety and, you know, the cool picture, right? Which is what you're really after. But regardless of what I'm doing or thinking and processing, like, do I want to do the paperwork after we take that kid to the hospital because he got ran over by a moose? How do I explain that to his mom? Regardless, Jenny's already 100 yards down the road, and she's just, like, going to go and see this moose. Overwhelmed by it. It's awesome. And so half the van goes about 100 yards away. And then I start getting that uneasy feeling. Mm, a little dangerous. If he charges, you're not out running a moose. I actually looked it up. They can run 35 miles an hour. They weigh about 1,400 pounds, stand six feet tall at the shoulders, let alone the head with the giant antlers, which this one had. And uh, according to a Canadian County website on how to avoid moose attacks, the number one thing you should do is go inside. And I thought, okay, we, we don't have that. <laughs> Second thing you should do, hide behind a tree, because I guess they don't want to look at you behind the tree. Or my favorite was the third thing to do, if there's no tree, if there's no house to go in. It says, curl up in a ball, cover your head, and hope the moose gets bored before it stomps you to death. <laughs> just, uh, and then just hope it just like, eh, that's enough kicking of that thing, whatever that is. I love that response. Okay, this is, there's not much you can do when confronted with such an animal. There was a healthy fear of the moose. Rightly so, they hurt more humans than bears every year but how much more of a healthy fear would you have if you looked out the van window and saw a creature with six wings covered in eyes with the head of a lion and it's talking and praising god and flying around i'm not getting out of the van and I'm locking the door and driving the other way. That's terrifying. There's a healthy fear in the presence of the Lord and those who surround Him. We have no answer to that kind of power, that kind of authority. And just like Isaiah says, when we see all of that, we also immediately see within and say, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a sinner and I do not belong here. 
This is not where sinners should be. A sinner would stand in judgment from the Almighty God. He would see right through all of my pretending, all of my lies, all the excuses I would have. I would stand there in awe and fear and say, I do not belong here. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you knew you did not belong. Where just something just told you, this isn't my kind of place. As a 17-year-old senior in high school, my dad was retiring from the Navy. And his retirement ceremony was actually right over here at Offutt Air Force Base. And it was a pretty fancy retirement ceremony. He was dying of cancer, and he was also pretty well connected. So I think people were pulling strings, and there was lots of, I don't know, admirals and generals and you know, uh, all the, the high-ranking officials. They had flags and rows of chairs. It was right outside the Stratcom building that has those giant missiles or whatever those things are that stick up there. Uh, and it was really fancy. It was a big deal. It was almost like a wedding. So we go to this retirement ceremony. And part of the ceremony is the family at the very beginning gets to walk down, much like a wedding, right? You walk down the center aisle, and there's hundreds of people there, all dressed in their military attire and formality. And my one and only goal was don't embarrass yourself and your family. Well, that lasted about two minutes because as I'm walking down the aisle, Instead of flowers, you know, like at each spot, they use these giant bullets as decorations, right? Only the military uses giant bullet shells as like decorations. But they stood a good three, four feet off the ground, bright, shiny brass and silver. And I don't know what they're from, but they're just giant bullets. And I remember walking by and saying out loud with my mouth, Ooh, shiny. And I just, just grazed it. Like if a fly landed on it, it would have put more pressure, I promise you. But I just like, ooh, shiny. And, and then the thing just goes, ding, ding. And if you've ever heard a bullet bouncing off the ground that's four feet tall, it is loud and it was clanking around. And then it starts rolling to the other bullets that are standing up. And I'm like, no. Well, thankfully, we did not have bullet dominoes because the guy that had set them all up and apparently had polished them, worked all day to make them nice, just so happened to be sitting right there. And he leapt out of his chair and stopped it in its tracks, set it back up. But at this point, everyone is staring at me. And I could just feel their judgment and the glaze and this like, what are you doing here? What a fool. Who are you? What, what are you doing here? Well, take that feeling and multiply it times a million. And it's how we would feel if we entered the throne room of the Lord. The angels would look on us and see our sin and rebellion. They'd see us as these filthy rags. And maybe they'd start whispering to one another, Hey, what are they doing here? 
They don't belong here. What's, what's going on here? They're embarrassing themselves. And when we look up to the throne, there's no clever comment that we can say. Right? When I was there at the retirement ceremony, I just looked up at everybody staring at me. And the only thing that came to mind was, Hey, I'm okay, everybody. That was a close one, though. I'm all right. Right? And then I just sat down in shame. That's... I don't think we'd say that if we appeared in the throne room of God. As a sinner, the most frightening place you could ever be is in the throne room of God. As a sinner, there is no greater danger, no greater one to fear, No place that you should worry about more just showing up there than the throne room of God standing before a holy God in His throne handing out judgment. There are no excuses for our sin. God sees into our hearts and He sees all of our hidden agendas. And if you had some kind of a rebuttal against Him, what could you possibly say? How could you argue with the wisdom of God? You're going to beat him in morality and say, no, no, no. What I wanted to do was right. What you wanted me to do was wrong. We will not have such arrogance before the throne room of God. What army could you bring to fight against God if you wanted to somehow take over the throne room and say, no, no, I'm in charge now. You get down off that throne. It's my turn to rule. What power could you use? What kind of leverage would you have over the creator of the universe? You're going to try and bribe him? What does he need from you? Nothing. There's no more time to fix it. To stand before the throne of the Lord is the end for sinners. It's the end of hope. The end of all things good. It's the end of joy. The end of love. For to stand before God's throne and receive His eternal judgment you will be once and for all completely and utterly and fully separated from God and all that is good and all that he gives as a sinner you do not belong in the presence of the Lord and it's a place you do not want to go for you will be consumed by that flaming fire of judgment. But praise God, the Lord did not send us out from the garden without a plan to bring us back again. There's no way for you and I to break this barrier of sin and remove this separation. But the Lord has made a way. Instead of us going to Him, He came to us. The Lord Jesus left His throne in heaven and He joined us in this wilderness, in the darkness of sin. He walked among us, He dwelt with us, and He brought the presence of God to His people. 
And just like we learned last week in Aaron's sermon, he, Jesus, fully satisfied all the requirements of the law. And he became that perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. He is our atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, he makes possible our main passage for this morning. And I know it took us a long time to get here, but that's okay. I needed you to feel the weight of what the author of Hebrews chapter 10 says. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Hebrews chapter 10, a passage you've probably heard before, but I want us to stand in awe of what he is saying. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, this is the conclusion. This is the answer to the therefore what happens now because jesus christ is our atoning sacrifice because he is our high priest because he has brought us forgiveness how do things change so read with me in hebrews chapter 10 i'm going to start in verse 17 it says then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus changes Everything. What once was the most frightening place to be as a sinner before a holy God, now by the blood of Jesus, this is the most glorious place to be. And it's where we can find joy forevermore. Psalm 1611 can now apply to us. Where it says, In His presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Only possible because of the blood of Jesus that plants us there. A sinner does not belong in the throne room of God, but for the one who has been forgiven, the one who has been redeemed by his blood, the one who has been cleansed by his blood, that one, the throne room of God, becomes their home. So we can confidently walk in with a bold humility. And stand before the throne of flaming fire. There is no more reason to hide. There's no more shame, no need to run away. We don't need to hide behind a pillar or stand behind somebody who's taller than us. We don't need to cry out, woe is me. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
we've been invited in by the blood of Christ. And by faith in his sacrifice, we gain admission and we're welcomed in to the throne room of God. Not just an earthly temple like Solomon built, but the spiritual reality of the actual throne room of God, we are invited in. Look again at verse 20 here in Hebrews 10. It says, By the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. I don't normally go to the Greek because I don't know it that well. But that word new in that verse is the, the Greek word that's translated as new. This is the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament of the Bible. That word new. It's a farming term. And it's uh, prosphetos, if you're interested. And it means freshly slaughtered. How perfect is that word? Contrasted with a living way. So here's what it says. It says, by the freshly slaughtered and living way that is opened for us. Nothing could better describe Christ and his freshly slaughtered death on a cross, yet resurrection from the grave and new life that then comes to us and offers us that forgiveness. It's only possible because he was slaughtered for our sins that he opens the way by his life that we can enter in to the throne room of God. So this invitation is to come in. And the only way to come in is through a Savior who has been freshly slaughtered and who yet lives. In Revelation chapter 5, he's described as a lamb who was slain, killed, and yet who is standing. This image of Jesus Christ and his body torn for us on the cross. The curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. That final symbol of separation between a sinful people and a holy God. Keeping the holiness of God behind a curtain so that it did not consume his people. It was a kindness of God to put that curtain in place. It was a kindness of God to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and put that flaming sword as a barrier because he knew if they were to draw too near to him, in their sin they would be consumed. And so God in his kindness created this separation. And God in his kindness removes the separation. And the curtain is torn in two in the temple as a symbol of the greater reality of the body of Christ being torn on the cross. And him making a new way for us to enter in, to be near to the Lord once again. He makes a way for us to get close to God without being consumed. He invites us into intimacy with the Lord. 
And it's only possible because of his new, freshly slaughtered death and resurrected life. And then he continues in verse 21 and 22. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, now we not only have a way to enter in, we have someone that takes us with him as he goes in. Jesus Christ is our high priest who brings us along as he goes in. Paul in Romans chapter 8 talks, he asks the question if God is for us, who can be against us? And he has this same idea that if Jesus Christ is on our side now, if he is my true high priest and draws me into the throne room of God, who could possibly cast me out? Who could raise a charge against me? What could people do? They're going to try and kill me? Okay. Well, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and what I see by faith right now, I will see by sight and enjoy His presence forevermore. Go ahead and kill me. You mock me, ridicule me, abuse me. My Lord Jesus was also ridiculed, abused, and mocked. And when you do that to me, I grow closer to him in my suffering. And I receive a connection with the Lord I would not otherwise have. So go ahead, persecute us as Christians. May we draw ever nearer to the Lord through it. You're going to ignore us as believers then? What could the world do? Just leave us to our own devices? Well, then we've got a priest, we've got a king who is leading a charge. That we get to join in with him. Jesus said, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so because we have this confidence to enter into this holy place, to be with the Lord, we then also have a confidence that He is going out in front of us, leading a charge into this world, and we get to join Him in this fight. Think of how backwards we often see that visual. When Jesus says, that his church will go out and the gates of hell will not, fight against, or will not stand against it. You don't normally bring your gates with you when you go out on offense. Gates are meant for defense. So who's on defense in that passage? Hell is on the defensive. The church is storming forward in offense, being led by the king. But often we buy the lie that it is reversed. That, oh, woe is us, the church. The world is against us. We're under attack. The world is winning. Look at culture. Look at everything, how it's going. And I just, society is against us. We just need to survive. And praise Jesus, he will keep us okay. As if our backs are to the back of heaven's gates and hell is encroaching, encroaching upon us. That's backwards. That's not the picture that the Bible teaches. The Bible says that hell 
is backing up on its heels because we as the church, by being led by a king, are going into this darkness, bringing his glorious light and expanding his invitation so others can come. We are storming the gates of hell together. And we can do that only because of the boldness that we have in Christ and because of what he has done for us on the cross. We have a king who is our priest, who leads us in this battle. So are we under attack? Yes, sure. But only because we're storming the gates. And when we do that, it says we draw near with a true heart. How near do we draw? Let this one verse out of Revelation 3.21 give you a hint of the intimacy and the closeness that we have with the Lord. This verse is ridiculous in a good way, as Bobby would have said years ago. This is Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. What? The throne that we just heard about? The throne of fire that shoots out flaming fire surrounded by these angels and this crazy scene in heaven? You can't even describe it. And yet Jesus says, No, come sit on my throne Next to me. And we hear the voice of the angels singing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. But then maybe our eyes drift out and we see people from our lives who knew us at our worst. And they look up at us and they say, What are you doing there? How dare you sit on that throne? Maybe even demons and Satan himself bring all the accusations of all the things they've stored up. All of your sins that they can highlight. And they say, how dare you sit on that throne? Why are you there? You don't belong there. And our answer, if we look to anything in us, anything that we've tried to do, it would fall so far short. If you said, well, I went to church so many times. I helped so many old ladies cross the street. I gave away a lot of my income. Those answers would not satisfy. But if our answer is, I know that this is not my throne. I know that I don't belong here. What you say of me is true. I have no defense. But I was invited. And I was placed here by Him. And Maybe you look up at the Son of Man and you see the compassion in Jesus' eyes as he looks at you full of mercy, 
full of grace and a love that is so immense it will take all of eternity to experience. And he knows what you're feeling, your weakness, and you're just like, I don't belong here. So I can imagine Jesus standing from his throne, taking a step out and making eye contact with the devil and all of your accusers and saying, this one's with me. They belong here because I put them here. It's by my blood that they get to sit with me. If you've got a problem with them, you've got a problem with me. And Jesus Christ, our high priest, represents us, defends us, and places us on the throne next to him so that we can enjoy him forevermore. We've been invited and we've been placed there. What an audacious invitation. Scandalous even. Then, I pray, we would add our voice to the chorus of heaven that sings out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong to our God. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. I pray that's what our voices will say on the throne next to our king. May we hold fast our confession of this faith and believe that these things are real, even though you may not see them with your eyes right now. You are invited in, not only to the throne room of God, but to sit on his very throne with Him, enjoying Him forever. These promises are true, and Him who promised them is faithful and will complete them. So you might be asking yourself, well, what am I supposed to do today about this? I'm glad you asked, because the author of Hebrews answers that for us. So, just in conclusion, let's look at verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, because of all these things that we've just talked about, verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, because of your confidence in Christ and your position in His presence, you can look around the room this morning to other believers and you can encourage them. You can build them up. You can say things like, You are free, so walk in your freedom. You have been forgiven, so leave that shame behind. I know that you're suffering and going through difficulties, but turn to Christ our King, for He is with you, and He will fight for you. 
You could say, get up. When you fall down, let me help you because we're storming the gates together. So let's go. Let's go, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's make an impact in this world. Let's go because we win. We already have the answers. And we know the future that Jesus Christ rules all and wins in the end. Hell is on the defensive. So let's get one another to join in the fight. So the author of Hebrews says, encourage one another. Meet together often. Why? Because it's so easy to forget. I don't need a lot of faith to believe the sun will rise again tomorrow because it has risen every day of my life for the last 41 years. What I need a lot of faith in are these truths that I have a high priest that represents me, that Jesus Christ really did die on the cross for my sins, that I really am forgiven, that God really does empower me to walk in obedience and by faith, that the Holy Spirit is really giving me gifts to serve the community, serve the church, and that God has given us these truths. I need constant reminders from His Word because it is so easy to forget. And when we feel like we're out there all alone in the wilderness, it becomes overwhelming. And so gather together. Remind each other of what Jesus has done on the cross and his freshly slaughtered living way. And may we encourage one another to walk in that way. And finally, we should have a humble boldness to go bring this invitation to others. There are billions of people on this planet that do not know they've been invited in. They're lost in the wilderness, lost in the darkness, so dark they don't even realize what they're walking in. They try and make their own light with other religions, other moralities, other ways of salvation. But they are all fleeting and worthless. Jesus Christ is the only way. So with a bold humility, may we as the church fight with the power that God has given us, which is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. So with that gospel power, May we, as a church, represent our King well. Have an open invitation to all who would have ears to hear. May we boldly go out and share with the world that desperately needs to hear of this King and to see His throne rightly. Because there will be a day, this day that is drawing near, if that day comes, and they're still sinners lost in their sin, it will not be a good day. It will be a day of destruction and the end of all things good. But if they believe, then it will be the day that they too can hear the words of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
and we begin anew as we worship our King on the throne and we find our home in the throne room of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is where we belong. An audacious invitation. May we have eyes and hearts to accept it and see it. Let's pray. Lord, we can speak of these things. I can preach of these things and describe from your word your throne room. But words fall short. Our imaginations fall short. Lord, you are holy. You are great. You are awesome in power. You judge justly and rightly. And we have nothing to offer. And yet, Lord, in your love, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and the life that he now has, he offers it to us and we accept it. We accept this invitation, Lord, with humility in our weakness, not ever being able to repay you, we just say thank you. Thank you, Lord. May we then join together in this world and fight. May we take your gospel to the ends of the earth like you commanded. May we represent you well. May we encourage one another and build each other up with these truths. So whatever we're facing, Lord, may we trust in you and see these spiritual realities of being in your throne room, having an advocate, and having a king and a priest who goes before us and leads us in the right way. So Lord, we submit to you and we offer you our praise and all glory and all honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.